Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me now once again to the book of Exodus. And we are in chapter 20. We're going to begin in a moment in verse 1. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Several years ago, there was a book that came out called The Day America Told the Truth. And in this book, the two authors surveyed thousands and thousands of Americans, asking them to speak quite honestly and candidly about their habits and about their beliefs. According to this book, according to their research, 93% of Americans said that they and no one else determine what is moral in their lives. According to their research, only 13% of Americans agreed that the Ten Commandments are still binding today, and they are still relevant to our lives. Now, if that is true, that explains a whole lot about the mess we are in. Most Americans believe that truth is determined and morality is determined. Right and wrong are determined not by any higher standard to which we must submit, but it is determined by our personal feelings and our own experiences and even our whims. It would be like if you went to a football game and every single player and every single coach on both teams got to decide for themselves what the rules would be. And those rules could change from play to play throughout the game. It would be total chaos, and no one would want to watch it. And yet that is exactly what we're seeing happening more and more in our world and especially in our nation. Historically, we've seen this before. We remember what it says in the book of Judges, how every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, this morning in the book of Exodus, we come to chapter 20 when God begins to give the law to Israel. Now, when we talk about God's law, let me remind you, there are three parts. There is the civil law of Israel, those rules that God gave them about things like land use and debts and waging of war. Then you had the ceremonial laws that God gave to Israel, laws uh, about ritual purity, uh, laws about sacrifices, instructions that were given to the priests to carry out in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. The civil law does not apply to us because we are not Israel. These ceremonial laws do not apply to us because they are fulfilled for us in Christ. What we're going to look at today is the moral law of God. God's moral law is given to us in the form of ten commandments. By the way, these are not ten suggestions. These are not ten recommendations. These are, in fact, 
Ten Commandments. And this law, yes, it applies to all people, everywhere, at all times. In fact, you will discover that all ten of these commandments are reinforced at some point in the New Testament. Unfortunately, a lot of people, when they think about the law and when they think about the Ten Commandments, it's as if they are thinking of a cage. And they say to themselves, if only we could break out of this cage. If only we could somehow be free, maybe then we would really enjoy life. But brothers and sisters, God did not give us the law in order to restrict us or to imprison us. God gave us his law in order to bless us. And it is still today in 2021 good for us. We are still better off when we keep it and worse off when we don't. Now, it would be really easy for me just to take one week, one message on each one of these Ten Commandments, and we could just camp out here for a long time. Now, that's not what I felt led to do. We're going to read the entire passage. We're going to look at all ten of these commandments, and then I want to review them and make some basic observations about them, four things in particular that we need to understand about God's law and how it works in our lives. Now, I hope you have your thinking caps this morning. Every passage, every message has some doctrine. Maybe we're going to have a little bit of extra doctrine in this message this morning. So stay with me. Look with me at verse 1 of Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day." Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. 
You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. I mentioned that there are four observations that we're going to make this morning about God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. And I believe that each of these four things are important if we're going to understand why God really gave us the law and how it really is supposed to work in our lives. First of all, we need to understand what the law reveals. We need to understand what the law reveals. Notice that this passage begins by saying, God spoke all these words. In other words, they did not come from Moses, but they came from God himself. We saw last week how God gloriously descended upon Mount Sinai, and there he physically and literally inscribed these laws in tablets of stone so that no one would doubt their source. And in chapter 19, God displayed his holiness. He displayed his glory. But in chapter 20, God really displays his heart and God reveals his character. You see, we're going to discover that every one of these 10 commandments point to at least one of God's attributes. All of these commandments tell us something about God's character and who God is. For example, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This commandment speaks of God's sovereignty. The fact that he is sovereign and he is the one and only God, that there are no others, that God has no rivals, that God has no equals. He rules and he reigns all by himself. That's what the first commandment tells us. We get to that second commandment, have or make no graven images. It speaks to the fact that God is spirit, that God is omnipresent. It speaks to the fact that God is infinite, and therefore there is no image that you could ever make for God that would not be an insult to him. The third commandment tells us something about God's character. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That tells us that God is worthy. He deserves to be honored. His name should be revered. It should be praised. By the way, let me just pause here and mention, isn't it interesting how in our world today, The world will take the name of God, how the world will take the name of Jesus and just casually use it as profanity in a conversation. Have you noticed the world never does that with the name of other gods or religious leaders? The world would never do that with the name of Allah or Muhammad or Buddha, but somehow the world is right at home. They're just fine taking the name of God in vain. God said, I will not hold them innocent who take my name in vain. God's name should be respected because God is worthy of honor and praise. The fourth commandment speaks of God's character. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. What does it tell us about God? It tells us that He is creator, that He is over and above creation, not part of it. The Bible says He worked for six days, and then He set the example for us when He rested on the the seventh day. 
And so God reminds us through this commandment that he is the one who created the universe by merely speaking it into existence. The fifth commandment, even that one tells us something about God's character. Honor your father and your mother. It reminds us that God is father, that Jesus taught us to pray our father, which is in heaven, that God acts as a father towards us. By the way, the fifth commandment is the first commandment that comes with a promise. God promises his people that if they will adopt the habit of honoring father and mother, that he will give to them long life in the land which they are going to possess. The sixth commandment, do not kill. It speaks to God's character. It tells us that God is the author and the creator of life. And God forbids the taking of innocent human life because that life is made in his image. He is the one who gives physical life, and he is the one who gives eternal life and abundant life. God is the author of life. The seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. What does it say about God's character? It reminds us that God is faithful. God is a covenant-keeping God, and God has created for us the covenant of marriage. And because God is a covenant-keeping God, therefore, husband and wife are to keep that covenant to be faithful as well, because God is faithful this commandment also speaks to God as a God of joy because he gave the blessing of intimacy to husband and wife to be enjoyed within marriage. That speaks of God's character as well. The eighth commandment, do not steal, tells us that God is provider. We don't have to steal to have what we need because God is generous and he promises that he will provide for us. The ninth commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Oh, we know what that says about God's character. That tells us that God is truth. He is true in all that he is. He is true in everything that he says and in everything that he does. First Samuel 15 says that God cannot lie. It is against his holy character. We remember what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then we come to that tenth commandment, do not covet. What does that tell us about God's character? That tells us that God is satisfying. You see, we covet when we desire something that God has not willed for us to have. And so God commands us not to covet because if we will seek him and if we will trust him, he'll not only meet our needs, but God will fulfill, he'll satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. And so can you see how each of these commandments teach us something about the character of God? And for that reason, the law never expires. There are some laws that they will pass in Washington, D.C., and the moment they pass them, they have an expiration date. God's moral law has no expiration date because God is 
eternal. Because the law reveals God's character, the law does not change. The law cannot change because God does not change. His character does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because God's law reveals God's character, that's why it is such a deadly thing when we break God's law. Because when we break God's law, we are actually assaulting God's character. To worship another God is to deny His sovereignty. To make for ourselves an idol is to deny His power. To lie is to deny God's truthfulness. To steal is to deny God's provision. Every sin that we might commit is an attack on the very character of God. And this is what makes sin so deadly. This is what makes it so dangerous. This is why, yes, sin, if it's not atoned for, if it's not forgiven, would keep and separate a man or woman from God for eternity. This is why, yes, it took nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus on the cross to atone for that sin because sin attacks the character of God. We need to understand, if we're going to understand the law correctly, that the law reveals something. It reveals the character of God. Now, there's something else we need to understand about God's law if we're going to use it correctly. We need to know how the law is summarized. We need to know how the law is summarized. Now, you have probably noticed if you've studied or read or memorized the Ten Commandments that there are two groups, right? That the first four commandments all have to do with our relationship with God. They are vertical commandments. The next six commandments all have to do with our relationship with our fellow man. They are horizontal commandments. Now, why are these groupings significant? Why are they important? Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22. The Bible tells us a story about how one of the Pharisees came to Jesus one day and uh, he decided he was going to trick Jesus, apparently not noticing that everyone before him had struck out. He asked Jesus a trick question. He asked him, which is the greatest commandment? You see, he thought that if he could get Jesus to pick one of those commandments above the others, he could accuse Jesus of weakening the others. And so thinking he had Jesus trapped, Jesus answered him and listen to what he said in verse 37. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Do you see what Jesus did? Jesus took these two natural groupings that occur within the Ten Commandments, and he demonstrated how they are summarized in one word, that word being love. The first four commandments tell us how to love God. The next six commandments tell us how to love people, love God, love people. This 
is the summary of the law. Paul said it this way in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, how so? If you love God, if you truly love God, you're not going to worship other gods before him. You're not going to make a graven image of him. If you truly love God, you're not going to take his name in vain, but you're going to honor and praise his name. You won't have to think twice about setting aside a day to worship him, a day of Sabbath rest. Likewise, if you truly love your parents, you will honor them. If you love your neighbor, you will not harm them or steal from them or lie about them or covet them. If you love your husband or your wife, you will be faithful to them. Now, folks, the world around us is always talking about love. They talk about love. They write poems about love. They sing about love without even understanding what love is or how it works, as if love is just some feeling that you feel when you feel something that you've never felt before. You want to know how love works. You want to know what love looks like. Look at the Ten Commandments. You want to know if someone really loves God? Do they have anyone or anything that is a higher priority than God in their life? How do they treat the name of God? Do they worship Him? You want to know if someone, some guy or some gal really loves their neighbor? Do you want to know whether or not someone actually, truly loves you? Do they harm you or do they bless you? Are they faithful to you or do they use you? Do they lie to you or do they tell you the truth? This is what love looks like on a practical level. Now let me ask you this. Is this what the world sees when the world looks at us. Do they see us loving God and loving people? Because that is the summary of the law. Now, if we're going to understand the law and use it correctly in our lives, we need to know what the law reveals. We need to know the summary of the law. But there's a third thing that is very, very important. We need to know how the law is limited. The law is limited in what it can do. Now, let me explain. It is not limited because the law is broken or because there is something inherently wrong with the law and how God gave it to us. No, the law is limited because God has limited purposes for it. God only intended for the law to do certain things in our lives, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But first, there are a couple of things we need to understand that the law cannot, cannot do. First of all, the law cannot save us. The law cannot save us. Let me remind you what God said to Israel in verse 2 before he gave them the first commandment in verse 3. Verse 2 says, once again, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Do you realize what God is doing here? God is reminding them of how he had saved them. God is reminding them of how he had already saved them by grace 
through faith, and after reminding them of their salvation, then in the very next verse, God gave them the law. Now, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I think it is worth repeating. There is an order here that is very important. First the gospel, then the law. First the gospel, then the law. God did not give us the law as a means of saving ourselves. The law cannot do that. God gave the law to an already saved people and then said, this is how saved people will live. Paul said in Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no one is justified. The law cannot save us. But there's something else the law cannot do because God did not intend for the law to do this. The law cannot empower us. It can't give us the power that we need to live the lives that we want to, to live the lives that we should. When you think of the law, others have used this illustration, and it's a good one. You think of a train on its tracks. Those tracks are very important. Those tracks give direction to the train. But let me tell you what those tracks cannot do. As important as they are, those tracks do not give power to the train. The power must come from another source. And so is God's law in our lives. Yes, it gives us direction. It tells us the way in which we ought to go. But the law, the Ten Commandments, do not give to us the ability or the power to keep the law. And this is where so many people miss the point. This is where so many false teachers miss the point when they begin to think of the law as a means for us to save ourselves or to think that we are somehow able on our own to keep the law, they reduce the Christian life to nothing more than a list of rules. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. There's that old saying some of you are old enough to remember, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. Do this, don't do that, as if it's just a list of rules and nothing more. Ladies and gentlemen, we need more than that. We need something from within. We need power. We need transformation. We need the gospel. And that leads me to a final thing that is absolutely essential if we're going to understand God's law and how it works in our lives. We need to see, we need to know how the law works. We need to know how it works. Even though the law, yes, it has its limitations. It cannot save us. It cannot empower us. And yet God gave us the law in order to do some very important things in our lives. You say, well, what does the law do that is so important? Well, first of all, it shows us our sin. It shows us our sin. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 7, 7. I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. At some point, Paul stopped and he began to think back to his youth. And he began to remember that time when he read the 10th commandment for the very first time. 
Or maybe that time when he really began to understand the Tenth Commandment for the very first time. And he said, when that moment came, the law did something. It opened my eyes. The law of God caused me to see something I had never seen before. The law caused me to see my sin. The law caused me to see that I had a covetous heart. Heard about a mom who was on a long road trip. She had her four-year-old son riding in the car seat in the back seat. And she'd been driving all day long. And as a result, the windshield was just covered in dirt and grime and bugs. But it was at night, and you couldn't really see anything uh, on the windshield. But then they came to a town, a very well-lit town. And with all the streetlights shining down, all of that dirt and grime showed up. And that little boy in the back seat said, Mom, look at all that dirt. A few minutes later, the town was behind them, and it was dark once again. And once again, you couldn't see anything on the windshield, and that little boy looked at that. He looked through that windshield. He said, Mom, look, now it's clean. Well, we understand the windshield wasn't clean. It was just as dirty as before. But when it came to the light... The light exposed all that was already there. So the law does in our lives. It exposes to us the sin that was there all along. That's why the law is so important. That's why it's important that you know it and that you hide it in your hearts. It shows us our sin, but there's something else that the law does, the Bible says, that makes it so important. Listen, It arouses our sinful nature. Did you know that? The Bible says that the law arouses our sinful nature. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 7, this time verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Notice this. He said, sinful passions were aroused. They were awakened by what? By the law. He's saying that when we read the Ten Commandments, they stir something up in us. They arouse something. They awaken something in us. What is it? That sinful nature. That rebellious nature that we have. That desire to overthrow God. That nature was already there. Sometimes it lies dormant. Sometimes we don't see it or think about it. Sometimes we persuade ourselves that we're better than we really are. Oh, but it's there. And here's what happens. The law comes along and one day we see it, we read it, we understand it. It speaks to us and it arouses that sinful nature inside of us. And let me just give you a few examples Why is it if you were to see a sign that said, do not climb over fence, what do you immediately want to do? You want to climb it. 
Maybe you walked by that fence a dozen times. You had no desire to climb that fence. You never thought about climbing that fence. But then one day somebody put up a sign. Do not climb the fence. And now something is aroused. Something is awakened in you. You want to climb it. Why is it that if you go for a walk in the park and there you see a sign saying, stay off the grass? What do you suddenly want to do? You want to walk on the grass. You want to lie down on the grass. You want to take a nap on the grass. You weren't even tired. But you see that sign and all of a sudden there's something inside of you now that wants to do it. Why is it dog lovers, if you have a dog, and you go to a park or someplace and there's a sign that says, no dogs allowed. What do you suddenly want to do? You want to put your dog on top of that sign and take a picture. By the way, that dog has amazing balance, I must say. <laughs> but why is it that you want to do that? You want to do that because the commandment, once it has been given, it arouses something inside of you. What is it? That sinful, rebellious nature that is already there. You see, God gave us the law not only to show us our sin, that we have broken God's law, but to show us that it is our nature to do so. And that we are not only sinners, but the law shows us that we are such rebels that if we had the chance, if we had the opportunity, we would remove God from the throne and replace him with ourselves. And because of that, because that is true, that leads to a final thing that the law does that is so important. It demonstrates our need. It shows us our sin. It arouses our sinful nature, but it also demonstrates our need because we have broken God's law, and because it is indeed our nature to do so, we have this need. We need to be fixed. We need help. We need forgiveness. We need salvation. We need the gospel. Galatians 3.24 says it this way. Listen to this. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to who? To Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law is our tutor. It teaches us some things. Someone said that the word sin really stands for Savior I need. The law shows us that because we've broken it and it is our nature to do so, we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. I don't think there's a person here who can look at even one of these Ten Commandments and say, honestly, I've kept that one. You think, well, uh, pastor, I don't know about that because I've never built an idol. I've never physically bowed down to an idol. May I remind you that about four or five times in Ezekiel 14, God said to his prophet, they have idols in their hearts. That thing that you love or desire more than God, what is that but an idol? Yes, we're guilty. Some of you say, but pastor, I've never murdered anybody. Are you kidding me? 
May I remind you that these commandments speak not only to our outward behavior, but Jesus said the condition of the heart as well. He said, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you have committed murder already in your heart. Yes, we're guilty. You think, Pastor, I've been faithful to my husband. I've been faithful to my wife. I've never committed adultery. Can I remind you that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that if any man looks on a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. When God looks at that person and sees what is actually in the heart, he sees a heart that is the same condition as the man or woman who actually externally carried it out. Yes, we are guilty. There's not a single commandment on this list that we can point to and say, well, at least I haven't broken that one. And let me ask you a question. What do you call a person who worships an idol? You call them an idolater. What do you call a person who commits murder? You call them a what? A murderer. What do you call a person that commits adultery? You call them an adulterer. What do you call a person who steals? You call them a thief. What do you call a person who lies? You call them a liar. Do you understand what the law says about you and what it says about me? I'll just make it personal so as not to hurt your feelings. The law says that apart from Christ I am a lying, cheating, stealing, blasphemous, idolater on my best of days. Not one of us can look at this list and say, at least I passed the test. No, we've all failed. We've all failed. And therefore, because we need a Savior. Here's what God did. Because we are law breakers, God has given to us a law keeper. That is why it was so important that 2,000 years ago, Jesus come from heaven to earth, and you know, the first 30 years of his life, we're not told much in Scripture about his life. You know why? Because it was very much an ordinary life, and it was necessary for Jesus to come and just experience life with all the highs and the lows, with all of the temptations and all of the trials that anyone else would go through over the course of life, that Jesus came and He experienced life, but without sin. You see, Jesus had to be a law keeper so that He would have innocence. He had to possess innocence so that he could then go to the cross and exchange his innocence for our guilt. The punishment for our law-breaking was placed upon him, and the reward for his law-keeping is given to us, to whosoever will believe upon him Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord and be 
saved. The good news is, no matter how often you've broken God's laws, we're all guilty and God is willing. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God is willing to meet that need in your life that only Jesus could meet, that need for forgiveness, that need for salvation. God is ready and willing to meet that need if you'll come to him and call upon him and ask him to be Lord of your life today. Do you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your law. The world thinks that it's one big cage meant to imprison us. But you gave us the law to bless us. And we thank you, Lord, because it's still good. It still reveals to us your character. It still shows us what love looks like, how to love you, how to love people. It shows us the things that we need to see in ourselves, like looking into a spiritual mirror. It shows us our sin. It shows us our inability to save ourselves. It shows us that we're not only sinners, but that we are desperately wicked. And that what we need is not a list of rules which we could not keep if we tried. But what we need is transformation from within. And God, we thank you that your word says that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. This good news that Jesus died on the cross and that he rose again, that it is the power of God not only to save us, but to empower us and to equip us to do the very things that the law demands, the things that we could not do on our own. And so, God, I pray this morning that by your Spirit living in us and through us, the world would be able to see these laws being lived out on a practical basis, that the world would see us loving you and loving people. And that in the process, the world would also see their sin and their need for a Savior. And that Jesus is the one who came and died for our sins and rose again, so that whosoever shall call upon his name will be saved. God, if there's some right now in this room or watching online within the sound of my voice who in this moment need to call upon the name of the Lord, God, how I pray that this would be that moment that they are willing to stop playing games, to stop persuading themselves, telling themselves that they're going to get to heaven by keeping the law because none of us have and none of us can. But God, I pray that in humility, they would acknowledge that they are a lawbreaker and therefore they need forgiveness, they need mercy, and they need grace. They need Jesus. I pray that this would be that moment, that day, that they call upon the name of the Lord in sweet surrender to him, that this would be the day of their salvation. Father, speak to us, show us, Lord, how to apply all that we've learned and all that we've heard this morning. I know that we've taken in a lot. It's been like drinking water from a fire hydrant, but God, would you help us to take this in so that it would bear fruit in our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. For just a moment, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, I cannot help but think, I must think that uh, in the crowd that we have today and those that are watching online as well, that there have to be some, there are always some who came today thinking, you know what, if I just keep the law, if I just keep the law, if I do this, if I do that, then maybe I'll be good enough and maybe I'll get to heaven. And maybe this morning you came here today, you heard this message and you realized, nope, it doesn't work that way. That none of us can be saved by keeping the law. We're saved by the one who kept the law for us, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died on the cross and rose again. And he did that for you and for me. Anybody here today that's willing to say, I admit for the first time, I've not only sinned, but I am a sinner who cannot save myself, and therefore I need Jesus. And today I want to call on him, and I want him to be Savior and Lord of my life today. And you've never taken that step before, the most important step you'll ever take in your life. But anybody that would say, Pastor, I want you to meet with me or pray with me after the service. I'm not going to point you out or embarrass you or anything like that. But anybody that would say, Pastor, just please uh, pray for me because I need to take that step today. I realize that keeping the law is not going to do it. I can't. I finally get it. I finally understand. Anybody that would say, Pastor, that's me. And today I need to take that step of giving my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. Just by raising a hand, anybody that would say, that's me, pray for me, keep me in mind, Pastor. Those of you that are online, you too as well. Uh, I want you to be a part of this, so please, uh, if you have not done so already, uh, would you just let us know? There's a text message that you can send. If you send a text message to this number that is on your screen, 786-600-2829, you'll get a link, and then when you click on that link, Tell us what it is God is calling you to do today, whether to become a follower of Christ, maybe you want to know more about baptism or membership in this church, then this is the way for you to do it. You can send that text message to that number, or for those of you in this room also, if you're just not sure if you're ready, you need more time, more information, you have connection cards that are under the pews. One side's in English, one side's in Spanish, so if you don't speak that, just flip it over. Uh, But you can fill that out and put them in the boxes here in the front before you leave today, and we will follow up with you, and we would love just to help you to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ.